1: To the Freedom Pact. I am delighted today to be joined by David Hannahmy Hansen, commonly known as DHH. David is the creator of Ruby on Rails, best-selling author, co-founder and CTO at Basecamp and Hay, two software companies that our audience may remember from our chat with Jason just a few months back. David was awarded the Hacker of the Year in 2005. And interestingly enough, was also named the ALMS Rookie of the Year Award for his pursuit in race car driving. That's a lot to dig into today. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Man, such a pleasure. So I think that a lot of people will hear your achievements and they'll hear that CV and they'll think, well, this guy is done in 40 years while most of us couldn't in 400. So I would love to know what has really driven you to keep going professionally and to keep pushing the limits?
0: Sure. Well, first of all, all these things you mentioned didn't happen in like two years, right? As you said, I'm 41 now and I've had uh, quite a few interests over the years. And sometimes certain interests takes the, the forefront and I focus on those. But perhaps more importantly than any of that is that I have not allowed any of those interests or professional pursuits to consume my entire existence. So when we started Basecamp uh, back in the early 2000s, it wasn't like I or Jason were putting in 60, 70, 80, or 100 hours a week, which is often this entrepreneurial rite of passage that Silicon Valley and the American tech scene keeps lauding as both somehow honorable and um, commendable, and perhaps above all, required. If you want to be a success, whatever that then means, you have to do this. You have to let your life be completely consumed by work. And we just never did that. We, from the beginning, worked 40 hours or less. In fact, when it came to base camp in particular, our Main product over all these years, the things we're still working on 17 years later, that was created on 15 hours per week. I happened to be in school at the time. Jason was running 37signals, the company that became Basecamp. As a consultancy, we had other clients. There were just a lot of other things on the plate. So when we went full time with Basecamp after it had launched uh, and been out for a year, 40 hours a week already seemed like a ton of time. I went from 15 hours a week to 40 hours a week. and was like, oh, what are we going to do with all this time? <laughs> so the idea of spending weekends and all my nights and all these other things on Basecamp just weren't even in the register, which meant that there were time for all these other things. So race car driving, for example, uh, was a thing I did on the weekends, completely compatible with uh, having a job. All these other things, the the writing and so on, would be things we just took time out to do. So for example, some of the most of the books we've written are kind of written in two ways. In one way, they're written over the course of 10 years. Rework, for example, our most successful book to date, which has sold over a half a million copies, was released in 2010, but it was written from 2001 through 2010 because we wrote the ideas in blog posts, we did them in presentation, we did them in all these other ways. So by the time, it came to commit these things to a book. 80% of the ideas were already formed. It was just a matter of pinning them down. The same thing with remote office not required, which we released three years later. Those ideas had come out of working remotely for 13 years. It wasn't that difficult to to pin it down. It wasn't like, oh, we have to lock ourselves in a box for two years. It was like, no, no, we're gonna sprint. We're gonna focus on this for like two months. And then that's gonna be that. Then we move on to something else. And I think this serialized approach um, just as a way of compounding. If you focus your energies and attentions on things like two months of time, three months of time, after 20 years, there's kind of a lot on the list. It just happens to be that way. So, uh, <clears throat> sorry, that um, I think that that's kind of the story of it, that it was never a... Um, oh, we're gonna break our back. We're gonna focus everything on it. it. Was just like, hey, you can do multiple things if you don't let any of them consume you.
1: It's really interesting, and I remember the chat which I had with Jason, and I asked him, "Look, what makes what constitutes a good outcome at base camp?" And he said, "Well, I can tell you that a bad outcome at base camp is if." we're working in our nights if we're working on weekends if our family hates us this and, that. and i found that really interesting and something else which i'm really interested in uh david is uh just as you said but you've worn a lot of hats you obviously created ruby on rails smash at home run co-founded Basecamp. uh you did hey uh, and uh all these required different skills coding skills business skills management skills you do photography you're a badass race car driver so as you say, you've clearly got a diverse portfolio of interests. Do you think that it's better to have a wide array of interests or is it perhaps better to hunker down and optimize? What Where do you stand on that?
0: Well, you almost sort of laid it up there in the sense that my approach has been that Renaissance approach, that mm. all these pursuits that I've had have helped each other. My understanding of of programming helped me become a better race car driver my understanding of how to learn and become a good photographer helped me pick up um, race car driving or improve my programming these are all sort of interrelated and and they assist each other and to me it's not even like what is the most productive path it is what is the better life to live and That life for me is one of diverse interests because it's simply more interesting. Again, that's just me. I don't have the intellectual stamina to focus on just one idea for months or years at the time. I just get bored. And it's simply more interesting to mix it up and do other things. I think about this all the time with programming. I really like programming. I particularly like programming in Ruby on Rails, and I've loved doing that for 20 years, but I don't want to do that only. Much of the enjoyment comes out of it being one of the things you do. I think about this with um, uh, chocolate-covered strawberries. They're delicious, right? (laughs) But you know what? After you've eaten three of them, the fourth, the fifth, The 12th is not that delicious, it's kind of repulsive. And I feel like that about a lot of things, right? I like a slice of programming in my life. Let's say if I get to do programming for four or five hours a day, and then that's that's enough. It doesn't have to be all of it. It doesn't have to consume all of it. In fact, it's better when it does not. And I think you just gain a broader perspective on both life and business and everything, when you aren't just singly focused on something. Now, I understand that there are some people, if you want to be, I don't know, an Olympic swimmer and win the gold medal, you probably have to let swimming consume your life for 14 hours a day. Um, although that's not even true. Um, this idea that athletes practice 14 hours a day is a complete misnomer. In fact, they rest and they do all sorts of other things. They have downtime and so on and so forth. But as the focus of their life, that this is the singular pursuit. Okay, fine. If you want to be literally the best in the world at something, devote your life to it. All, all the best to you. I have no interest in that. I don't want to be the best at any individual things. I want to be the best. Well, actually, I don't even want to be the best. The idea of best relies on comparison. Why do I need to compare myself to anyone else? I want to leave a satisfied life where I get to pursue the things that I find interesting. And then I am learning and I'm getting better. It, the comparison to other people, I find to be most of the time, just a kill of joy. When I'm contrasting myself to, for example, other race car drivers, I'm never going to be the best race car driver in the world. That was never going to happen. I got my driver's license when I was 25. I was 20 years too late to ever become like a true great race car driver. So what? There's so much enjoyment that can be found simply becoming good at something for the sake of becoming good at it, not for the sake of beating other people or being the best in the world, but the intrinsic motivation and satisfaction of unfolding your human capacities. That is just something I care deeply about and gives me this sense of contentment, which is relates to this other question I often get like, oh, so you've been doing all this stuff. What's next? There's this assumption that everyone is constantly on the prowl for the new opportunity that they're going to pounce on. And if they've done something for a long time, they're probably like done with it. Right. And that assumption, I think assumption again, comes from this idea that like, oh, you were single-mindedly focused on something for five years, 10 years now, surely it's time for something else. I could totally get that. If you were single-mindedly focused on something for 10 years, I'd get bored too. Right. I just don't get to that position, right? Like that's a choice. You can choose something differently as I've done where after 20 years of programming, I love it as much as I did 20 years ago. And I do because I didn't exhaust it. I didn't squeeze every ounce and drop out of that fruit from the get-go. Um, and then it just lasts
1: longer. This idea you're discussing by you is something which really, um, hits a chord with an idea that Seth Godin said on the show when I interviewed him. And he said that he tells people all the time, look, stop looking for your passion. Find something uh, which sparks some curiosity in you and then develop love for it over time. Do you think that you've done that or over time? You've maintained a healthy relationship with it in the long term?
0: A hundred percent. In fact, that describes my path into programming to a T, I did not love programming when I started programming. I started programming because I needed programs, because I wanted things on the internet to happen. So I learned just enough to do that. And it took many years before I actually turned that skill into a passion. And it wasn't until I encountered Ruby and Ruby on Rails where it really went from programming is a thing I do to programming is something I love. And for some people, it never happens. And that's okay. The world is full of people who are immensely competent and good at what they do. They don't love it. It's just, it's a thing. And that's fine. I think we've set the bar too high in a lot of areas by requiring this passion. And particularly in, in technology, I think it's, it's almost become like a, a shield to justify all sorts of other abuses, either against employees or against yourself, right? Like if you're so passionate about it, then of course you wouldn't mind working 14 hour days. Like you love it, right? Um, so I'm careful with that. Even though I, at this point, I do love programming. I do love Ruby and Rails. Um, and it was something I grew into. It wasn't how it started. And that's true for, for a lot of things. Although I will say actually uh, race car driving, it, it, the uh, the infatuation went a little faster. I sat in a race car. I drove a race car dr- car for the first time and I went, okay, this is good. I, <laughs> I, I, I want to do more of this. I want to get good at this. So that was a little bit more love at first sight. Photography totally was not. It was also just one of those things like, oh, you take some photos on a, on a vacation. And it took many years until I even had a basic appreciation of the fundamentals of like, what does that actually mean? What's good composition, what's the rule of thirds, what's exposure, what's all these other things. And then as Seth would say, right? The the love, the passion, the excitement often comes when you get better at something, right? I have uh, three kids and my oldest um, just got really excited about math, right? He hadn't been that excited about math for a long time but then they were learning something new, he got it. And like came home just glowing, like math is fun, right? Like this was something he (laughs) developed an appreciation for because he kind of got good at it and dove more into it. I think there's so many things that work like that, that almost everything is interesting if you just dig deep enough.
1: I love that idea, man. I love that idea. When I was um, preparing for this, I think that you wrote a great article, which I'm going to link people below. It was from 2015. It was called uh, Reconsider. And um, in this article, you kind of discuss stop copying others, opt out of, excuse me, opt out of this, you know, uh, hustle porn culture that we're in um, and kind of make a dent in the universe, which was a phrase which I loved. Could you kind of double click on that and and elaborate?
0: Sure. So Reconsider was a broadside that was supposed to have been delivered at a European startup conference. Um, I never actually appeared at that conference. I forget why. But the idea was to tell a bunch of people who are currently on a singular path to build companies in tech that there are many ways you can build these companies. And right raising a bunch of money, taking investor funding is one way. I think it happens to be a, generally a poor way that turns out to have very bad outcomes for a lot of people, both all the people who work at companies who get killed because they don't turn into unicorns. And for society, when those companies do turn into unicorns and they end up being the next Uber or Facebook or whatever plague they unleash upon the world. So reconsider is a plea to essentially think about like, do you know what? There's also another way of doing it. Let me tell you a story about how we did it, which was essentially the story of Basecamp. We funded the business with consulting revenues, so we never had to take any money. We didn't switch over to work on it full-time until it could pay our meager salaries directly. That gave us a whole new level of freedom, which is this concept that entrepreneurs are usually quite in tune with. This is why they start their own companies in the first place, because they want to run their own show. And then they go out and get a bunch of investors who essentially become their bosses and can tell them what to do, right? And push them into areas and push them into places where they perhaps wouldn't have gone without that imperative that growth is the most important thing in the world. And I think perhaps more than anything else, it's a refutation of that concept, that growth is above all else. Do you know what? No, growth is sometimes a useful thing that happens to companies, Very often, it's a harmful thing that happens to companies. And the story of Basecamp is one where we grew for a while, very slowly. Um, Basecamp was, was doing very well back in 2004, 2005, 2006. I think by 2008, we were still only like seven people at the company. We very intentionally kept the company as small as possible for as long as possible. And in 2014 we kind of stood at an inflection for uh, a fork in the road. We could have gone two ways. We had four products at the time. They were all doing well. Basecamp was doing better than all of them, but the rest of them were doing well too. And we realized at the time we were about 40 people, 45 people. We don't have enough. We have four products. They're all growing. Um, if we're going to have, if we're going to do justice to any of these uh, or, or to all of these products at the same time, we need to be much larger. We need to maybe double, maybe triple uh, the size of the company. And normally that's not even a point where you stop and think, you just go like, hey, what? You have successes, boom, hire more people, spend more money, ramp it up, right? Like get some rocket fuel and just jam it into those enterprises and off we go. These are the rocket ships you're supposed to launch, right? And we went like, is that what we want? Do I want to sit on a fucking rocket ship don't those things explode every now and then do I even want to go to Mars (laughs) um and our our conclusion was no I don't want to be on a fucking rocket ship this is good we're good 40 people like that's a good size I don't want to work at a company that has 150 or 300 because you know what then I probably can't do my favorite things probably can't spend half my days programming Ruby on Rails. I'm probably going to be stuck in meetings all day long. And the main piece of software on my computer is going to be my calendar and all the fucking meetings I have to attend. That sounds miserable. Why would we do that to ourselves? Um, So we didn't. We pulled the cord and said, you know what? We're not going to grow. We're going to divest ourselves of these other businesses. In fact, we didn't even divest ourselves of them. We just said like, we're not accepting new customers for for the majority of these products. One product we tried to spin off. It ran as a separate entity for a while. We ended up sort of regretting that. And then it went the same route as, as the others. We just shut it off for new customers, continued to serve the ones we already had, and doubled down on working on Basecamp, which allowed us to keep the company at around the 40, 50 mark, um, which today, what is it, seven years later, we're 56 people. So it happened. It succeeded pretty well that we were able to arrest the growth of the company because we've had enough enough right not as in we were we we're like ugh, this is horrible but as in no 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 this is good i don't want to i don't want to fuck this up we're in a great place right now by that time we'd been in business for what is that 15 years i talked to so many entrepreneurs who'd ended up hating their companies and was a key motivation for why they ended up leaving selling because you know what i, I just don't want to work here anymore I started this company. I turned it into something that I didn't want to be at. It's time for me to get out. And I always thought like, why did you do that? You could also not have done that. You could just have kept it at the good times, right? This came out of a lot of conversations that were sort of reminiscence in nature. Like, oh man, remember when we were a small company? Remember when we were just 30 or 40 people and we just make things happen and we just push things out and things were so much simpler. We have fewer layers of management. We could just move fast, right? And I always thought like, that was a moment in time. You could just stop there. So that's what we did. We stopped there. We f- we froze time, so to speak. Um, although not really, we continued to work on the products, but we froze the sort of the size of the company and our ambition level. We froze that. We don't have to grow revenues. We're making plenty of money. I by that time, both Jason and I have had accumulated enough. Right? Like what? What are we going to do with a? with another zero on the bank account, right? Like it's not going to change our life in any way, shape or form. What is going to change our life and make it distinctly worse is if we turn this company into a place we don't want to work at anymore. And now what? we got to find something new and different to do? No, thank you. I love the
1: idea of enough. And this was one of the things in which I took away from my conversation with Jason and the, the type of show which this is is there obviously type A personalities listening and the concept of enough, it's the antidote, I think, to a lot of suffering. So I really love that idea. I think that uh, we've really touched on, uh, uh, really delved kind of deep into, you know, sort of your career and the sort of underlying mechanics of how you've made some decisions as you just discussed today. You mentioned earlier that you've got three kids. Um, I would love to know, what would your best career advice be? Hmm.
0: Well, one of the things I have been happy about with my own upbringing was that there was absolutely zero pressure of anything in any direction beyond, I want you to be happy. Hmm. I want you to end up doing something that's fulfilling and interesting with your life. And if you're happy, we're happy. I think that's generally a good outlook. Um, It's an outlook that is more difficult in certain societies than others. I happen to sit in Copenhagen right now and that's where I grew up. Quite easy advice to dispense to kids growing up in Copenhagen. I've also lived in the United States for 15 years much more difficult to dispense that kind of advice there because there your career choices aren't just about what you find fulfilling but they are existential in a way that are like life-threatening almost Mm -hmm. you end up being a starving artist that can't get health insurance and can't afford to send your kids to a good school or, or whatever and things all of a sudden look quite different for you, right? Like just this uh, uh, follow what gives meaning in your life advice is to use modern terminology, a privilege. And that is a privilege that is unevenly distributed around the world. It was a privilege that was available to me in Copenhagen growing up in a working class family that didn't have a bunch of money, Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a constraint on what I could choose to pursue. And I really, come to appreciate just what a privilege that was so I would like to extend that same privilege now some of the things are different in fact it's almost like the opposite right like my kids are growing up on the opposite end of the class spectrum they're growing up intensely privileged not just in a which avenues are open to you but in a very direct monetary and resource way right Um, and I think more about how do we as a family counter the corrupting elements that come with that, that come with that level of wealth? And uh, it's something that there's not an easy answer for. But I've been much inspired by a, a bunch of writing I've done or sorry, not writing. Well, also writing, um, but I'm mostly inspired by my reading to write, not the other way around. Uh, a bunch of readings I've done over over the past several years about sort of the economics and critiques of capitalism, and if the privilege that we have and the opportunities that we can afford our kids are such that I can remove this capitalism. The accumulation need, this um, constant worry and focus on money as this pivotal, perhaps even primary pursuit in life. Like That's what we should spend our money on or our time on, right? Like insulate them in some ways. And it's funny, I just had this debate with my wife the other day where we were talking about like, well, don't you actually have an obligation to teach your kids about the value of money, right? And I'm like, Actually, I think we have an obligation to the opposite, right? Like freedom from understanding the value of money because the value of money as a sort of operating principle in society is already far too dominant. In fact, that's going to be forced down their throat five different ways from Sunday uh, in all sorts of different directions. We should actually give them the antidote to that, right? The appreciation that money and whatever is, is not the purpose of life. (laughs) go back to what I found so liberating in my own upbringing was even though we didn't have the money, right? Like that they were not constrained for and it wasn't like the, the main focus area and that I was free to get involved with the things that I found interesting for their intrinsic nature, not because that would one day turn into some grand career. In fact, when I was growing up, I spent the vast majority of my time on computer games, right? Which especially at that time, There were a lot of parents, I remember, who were like, "Are you wasting your time playing computer games. (laughs) Okay, so what? What does wasting your time even mean? I'm having a great time with my friends and exploring computers. That should be enough in and of itself. I mean, the funny irony would then be, of course, that this interest in computer games led to an interest in computers, which led to the career that I ended up with, which turned out okay. Okay. So um, (laughs) anyway, these are the things that we're kind of, I mean struggling with is a big word and i I'm sort of cautious about using that because in some ways like we have the opposite of a struggle right like in, at least in terms of um, resources and so forth but that doesn't mean these 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 problems aren't real and I, I think if, if you have attained the level of success and wealth that we've been blessed with making sure your kids don't grow up like totally fucking assholes is is, is one of the prime directives actually it should be for everyone, right? Like, make sure your kids don't grow up like assholes. But it seems like there's an extra risk factor if um,
1: if you happen to be at that, uh, whatever, place where we are. I love that, man. I love that. I thought that was a fantastic answer. Um, I'd love to uh, bridge this conversation. So we've touched on Korea now. And one of the things um, that has come up Uh, a fair bit in this conversation is kind of learning. Clearly, you're a guy that has adapted very well to multiple fields, like you mentioned, Ruby, photography. Uh, Obviously, you would have had to learn skills in business, in management, race car driving. Um, How do you approach learning?
0: It's a good question. And originally, it was not something I thought about. I think getting into programming for example it was not a conscious uh, approach oh how do I learn this it was just sort of dabbling through it but I will say that I used that experience of learning how to programming becoming good at programming and kind of tried to extract some principles I could apply when I were trying to learn other things one thing was um, embrace the mind of the beginner you're gonna suck and that is good In fact, in many ways, it's more fun to be the beginner because the progress you're making is so rapid. You go from totally sucking to being like barely competent in very little time at all if you're putting in some effort, right? In fact, it takes no talent really to go from totally sucking to barely competent. Anyone can do that in almost any field in the world. and that's fun. That's where like the neurons are really firing, right? I remember like the race car, for example, I would, uh, when I was first learning that, I'd sit in a race car, I, I do my laps on the track and I just come out of it like, just like my mind, like the galaxy brain meme thing, right? Like I've learned so much. There's just so many inputs. This is, this is amazing. And to treat that as something special to be cherished, not something to be ashamed of. Oh, I suck. Not like, oh, man, I suck. This is really bad. It's like, no, oh awesome. I suck. It means I can learn so much so quickly and I can progress at a furious pace. And that's going to be a lot of fun. Second part, identify the people um, you want to mimic. I'm a great mimic. In fact, in race car driving, that's still my primary technique, even after having attained a certain level of, of skill, is like, I know I'm never going to be again, the greatest race car driver in the world, but I can actually get pretty good at mimicking one. And in race car driving, that's a lot about studying um, telemetry. So you can see exactly how do people turn? When do they break? How much do they break? I, I can really mimic that. But it's a principle that I've applied both in programming and in business and in photography. You find someone who's really good and then you try to decompose it. Why are they good? What is it that they're doing? Let me look at a bunch of their work and try to sort of suck up the marrow of that, so that I can learn what it is. And a lot of times this is I've heard this described in learning how to draw, for example, as well, right Like you don't you're not gonna you're not gonna be an innovator in drawing right away, right? Like at first, you don't even fully understand why you're doing the things you're doing, you're just copying. and at some point that copying becomes competence and that yes. competence can then be used to create your own stuff. But there is a phase where like you're just copying, you don't even fully know what you're doing why you're doing what you're doing but that's okay. So that relies on spotting some experts that you want to follow and just sucking sucking it all in. And again, that again, relies on this idea of reducing the space for your ego as much as possible, right? There are people who quite quickly become to like a basic level of competence. And then they're kind of like, well, you, uh, you're not going to tell me what to do. I saw this particularly in race car driving, right? Someone would show up and like, they'd have some bare level of competence and like no one was going to tell them how to get better. And they just never did. Right. They never got better because if you already think that like, well, I'm good enough and I know it all, then um, you're not going to improve. Which then leads to this idea of picking your stage. Let's use the race car driving example again. Like you could become the best race car driver at your local track. Like, okay. I mean, there's something that had absolutely no interest to in me. I gave two fucks about being the best race car driver at my local track. What is that size of that pond? It is just very small. I kept leaping out of the pond that I was in as soon as I even got like in the top, let's say 30% or something. All right, time for a new pond. I'm not interested in staying here. I have no interest in becoming like the best of a tiny pond. Let's keep hopping. Let's keep going to a, a bigger series that's more competitive and have better people in it. The same thing with uh, uh, with photography, for example, right? Like you're like, oh man, now I've, I've, I've had a base level of competence. I can create some nice pictures that if you compare it to like whatever the average is on Flickr, it looks pretty good. Um, no, 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 keep going. What are the best doing? Um, how, how do what I do compare against that? Again, not for me to feel bad about it. I mean, as soon as you reach a level of basic competence, you can have just an intrinsic satisfaction in doing that, right? Like, all right, I know how a car works. Like, I, I can control it if it spins out of control a little bit. I can, I can take good pictures. I can write good code. I can solve almost any problem. But like, um, let's keep going. You can keep getting better in almost any everything. You can keep getting better, which is another thing of of um, why I never stayed in the small pond. Because it, once you become the best at something, there's only one way to go, down. Right? I I like going up rather than going down. So continuously having additional steps on the ladder is just, it's more fun. It's an eco-protecting quality too, right? Like I, I found that uh, again with uh, race car driving, for example, that as soon as I would just go into a bigger series people better, I would just like, all right, I'm better. Like the, the baseline here should be that I lose, right? So I've already made myself okay with losing, that's going to yeah. be the default. And then if I win, it's just this amazing bonus cherry on top. Um, and I think that's another technique for protecting your motivation. So, so you don't get discouraged when you're not the best, when you don't win, when whatever, whatever, just assume that you're not going to because you've put yourself in a place where that's the default. Um, and then everything else is gravy and everything else is bonus. So those are some of the techniques that used in successes fields and I'm kind of almost now looking for like another place to apply that I've done race car driving for example for like what 12 13 years I'm kind of getting at the end of that I've I've reached the plateau that I'm realistically not going to improve upon there's not a lot of 41 year old race car drivers who sort of get better after after the years right you just le- reach some limits of your reflexes and, and whatever, which is which is great. I've had a wonderful time. That's the other thing is to realize that most things come to an end at some point and that's okay. It's a wonderful time. I, I use that uh, stoic technique of negative visualization where you imagine all the sort of worst things that can happen and how things might end. For example, in business, this is one of the ways we find the strength to commit to our courage, commit to our kooky ideas is to have factored in upfront, you know what? There's a good chance it might fail. You know what? They might fail so spectacularly that we pulled the company down with it. We made egregious errors and we're going to blow up the company. And if that happens, I'm going to make myself okay with that outcome up front. I'm going to think like, do you know what? We got 20 years. What a run. Who gets to stick around for 20 years in the internet business? That's amazing. So, Anything that happens now after these 20 years, like it's just gravy. Oh, we got to go to 21. Amazing. Already most people don't get to do that. So if it should all stop tomorrow because we've made some egregious error, the market totally shifts and we miss it. I'm still going to be like, that was great. No regrets. All good.
1: Jason, went again, Jason, when he was on the show, he said that if it all ended tomorrow, he said, I would never start another tech company again. <laughs> he said, I would not start another business again. So one of the things which, which you said, which I would love to double down on, which really, really has hit home ideas that I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, I first got this um, idea from a conversation which I had with Shane Parish back in, I think it was 2018. And I've thought about this a lot ever since. And that's this idea of being willing to look stupid and be kind of being willing to look stupid as a competitive advantage. And ever since this idea, I've kind of realized that it's actually, you actually get an enormous ROI from being willing to say, look, I, I actually don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you mean. Like, can you help me? And a lot of people are just not willing to do that. Is that something you relate to in any way? Hugely. And
0: that goes to that discussion we just had about the ego is the enemy. It's the enemy of learning. It's the enemy of joy. It's the enemy of, of many good things in the world. This thing that you have this fragile little part of yourself that is afraid of being exposed to the world and being ridiculed and so forth. When so many times the opposite is true. So I've really internalized this idea, and we use it in business all the time. I use it in business all the time. In, to some perverse way, I relish making mistakes at Basecamp. Because whenever I make a mistake, it's an opportunity to test my commitment to this egoless approach, to apologize in public, um, and to set things right. You're not gonna ever make it through business or life without making mistakes. The main thing that matters is how you respond to it. And people observe that. And it's such a competitive advantage to be able to approach your mistakes in an egoless, authentic, human way. Because not only is it sort of difficult for most individuals to do, it's almost impossible for corporations to do. Corporations have more ego than almost anything else out there. Most of them are institutionally incapable of offering authentic apologies, for example, of truly making things right. There are a thousand factors that leads them to double down on bad positions, which means that if you are capable of doing the opposite of saying, hey, we made a mistake. I'm really sorry. This really sucks. How can I make it better for you? Uh, And then do make it better for someone. That interaction is something that lasts, it lingers. I see you have the book, Influence, on your shelf behind you. And it's yeah. it's one of the principles in, um, in Influence that I think he gives the example, this is 20 years since I last read Influence. So I think he gives the example that if a patron goes to a hotel, they have a problem at the hotel, like, I don't know, maybe their condition doesn't work or whatever, something else happened. And the hotel then resolves that conflict, like above and beyond. The patron ends up feeling better about the hotel because that happened than if it hadn't happened at all. Mm. That a flawless stay at the hotel is less likely to produce loyalty and admiration for the brand than a stay at the hotel that had a problem that was solved above and beyond. Yeah. So I think about this all the time that every single time we, inadvertently making mistakes. It's an opportunity to make things so much better that we come out on the other side better off on both sides, right? We come out better off because we now get to burnish our brand by doing the right things. And the person gets out on the other side and like, you know what? They really made it right. In fact, when I think of the majority of affections that I have for certain brands, they're usually rooted in a story like that. Something went wrong and they went above and beyond. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. That's the story I'll share with friends, Twitter, whatever. Um, so making mistakes is not, it's not the issue. Uh, failing to address it, failing to embrace it, failing the humility it takes to accept your complicity accept your uh, culpability in these places, that's um, that's the defining factor. And the fun thing about that is that it's difficult, yeah. right? Like if everyone was doing it all the time, it a wouldn't be a competitive advantage. It wouldn't really even register on the radar. Um, and it wouldn't be something that requires this content test and skill because I, like every other human will initially get that pain, protect the ego, right? Someone points out something we're doing that it's wrong. And I'm like, get all defensive. And then I'll sit down and stew on that defensiveness for a little bit. And on my best days, I will then realize that that's the ego talking. Don't have to let the ego talking. just let the ego talk. Just sit still, wait for it to finish, and then uh, let your empathy talk instead. And when you do that you distance yourself from it a little bit, right? You distance yourself from the ego, you distance yourself from this uh, need we all have to be correct and the shame that we all feel when it's pointed out that we're not. Um, And then you can really just, yeah, double down on the counter and it's just so satisfying. And I've found time and again that when you approach those situation and authentically and thoroughly apologize, it's almost impossible For the other side to stay angry there's a principle we describe in is it rework or doesn't have to be crazy at work uh uh, the notion of the coin that all interactions um when something bad happens has two coins or, or two sides to a coin and you can pick which one and usually the the customer will pick one and the company will pick the other and the two sides are this is no big deal And the other side is it's the end of the world. If you preempt picking it's the end of the world, when someone faces a problem, they have to pick it's no big deal. And they will nine out of times out of 10. So someone reports an issue and they're kind of like they're a little upset. And you then up it, you're like, holy shit, this is terrible. I'm so sorry. This is awful. We will do everything in our power to set this right almost invariably humans will respond, but oh, no, I'm, it's not actually that big of a deal. It's all right, right? And now you have this human connection um, versus if someone comes to you and say, hey, there's this issue and you go, yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's just a, it's just a small thing. Just uh, hold it differently. Was that what Steve Jobs said with the, with the phone? Just grip it differently, right? Like, it's no big deal. People will go like, "Oh no, fuck! It is. It is the biggest deal in the world, right? You just belittled my attempt to raise here. something with you, right? So now I'm furious, and I recognize that myself. This is when I get most worked up at companies. Is when I come with to them with some sort of issue, and they take it's no big deal as the side of the coin. I almost like instinctively, as do most people, pick no, no. This is the end of the world.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that, man. I love that. I would love to, uh, as you kind of mentioned, probably. I'd love to uh, start winding down this conversation and sort of venture into big tech. You're about 15 minutes left. So I would love to... Um, Take this conversation over there. Before this uh, interview, I I very mistakenly offered you a Google Calendar invite, which was uh, swiftly shut down. <laughs> so uh, I was thinking about this idea the other day. We had a guy on the show um, that said that basically big tech is kind of out of control, and that perhaps it's time that we need to have a conversation about a digital bill of rights. Do you think that that would be a sensible? Idea. What are your kind of thoughts on that?
0: I completely agree with the diagnosis. Big tech is completely out of control. We've let it get out of control by neglecting the entire domain for 10 years from a regulatory and legislative perspective. And now we're faced with a hangover of ignoring these companies becoming the biggest, most powerful companies in the world. With no restraints, and now we have to clean up that mess and we've only just like started to scratch the f- surface so at the very least we started scratching right like that's better than what we were doing two years or five years ago when we were still cheering them on and going oh it's so wonderful that uh, google is giving all these services away from free what benevolent masters we have um, we should be eternally grateful mm, turned out they weren't that benevolent and we shouldn't be that grateful. So that conversation is at least starting. I think the concept of a bill of rights is interesting in the sense that it's um, legislative, so to speak. I think that is the step we need to realize that this isn't going get, get solved by individual action. You can't uh, revamp our screwed up place with big tech by a handful of people choosing not to use Google. It can help further discussion about the role and power that these companies have, and it serves an important purpose for that regard. But in terms of actually changing the dynamics of power in the world, it's not enough. You're not going to get there through consumer action. So a Bill of Rights invokes this idea that this is something legislative, which I think is exactly where we need to end up. Um, What's exactly in that? Um, I've had a bunch of proposals over the years, and right now I'm passionately fighting for essentially net neutrality when it comes to the app stores that they can't um, choose to shake down certain businesses for these obscene 30% cuts of their revenues just Mm. because they have a power advantage through their monopoly that no, no, no. You're as what it's called in monopoly language, you're a common carrier. You have to treat everyone equally because you have this monopoly platform that is essential to the functioning of modern society. This is not just sort of some one platform out of many where people could pick whatever they want. No, they're really just two. There's Google and there's Apple when it comes to the most important computers in society today, which are the ones we carry around in our pocket. It's completely untenable and insufferable that these companies then exploit that power to shake down businesses and make things worse uh, for consumers. So that's one aspect of it. And that's perhaps the fight that I'm mostly directly involved with. I've been testifying to basically any <laughs> uh, any place that wants to hear. I've testified in front of the, the U.S. Congress. I've um, written things for for regulators in the EU. I've testified in the States. I've, I'm basically, whoever wants to listen about this, I, I will give our perspective on it. Um, the second part I also think is is in some ways as important for the future of the Internet and our relationship with it is surveillance advertisement um this idea that facebook and google can turn the worst sludge the internet can drag out of its dungeons into gold as long as it attracts eyeballs is fundamentally broken and that brokenness is starting to break other parts of society that the algorithmically powered news feed and so on um inevitably veers into a domain where if we can make people the most unhappy, the most upset, the most frightened, the most antagonistic, we will make the most money. And this is one of those things where incentives will beat all the good intentions of the world. And right now, the incentive of both Google and Apple is to capture all the eyeball time, right? And they capture it with whichever, which way is most successful. Like in many ways, it isn't even necessarily an intentional behavior. Many of these algorithms are self-optimizing. They will simply promote whatever is attracting the so-called most engagement, which usually means people screaming at each other. Um, (laughs) And you know what? That's not leading us to a good place. And the reason it's not leading us to a good place or the reason it, it persists is that, that engagement is so valuable because it doesn't—it doesn't matter what it is, because now that we can target, hey, you are a 34-year-old man who lives in Manchester uh, at a two-flat apartment, and you have a girlfriend that might be pregnant this month. Like, there's all sorts of demographic identity information that can be used to target your the appetizing to you in an incredibly detailed way that it then doesn't matter where that advertisement is shown. It just matters that it's shown to you. That is a fundamental break with how media has functioned for the past 200 years or whatever, 300 years, however long we've had newspapers and and the like. Where if you wanted, for example, to to sell golf clubs, right? Where would you advertise? Um, Would you advertise in, I don't know, some sort of lurid magazine? Probably not, you'd probably advertise in a golf magazine, right? That's where golfers go to go. Golf for Us magazine or whatever it is. That's where you advertise your clubs because that is the assumption that the venue is what brings the people you're trying to reach. Um, That is a fundamentally more healthy way of distributing advertising funds. That the people who build or, or write good content about golfing should be rewarded with the money that golf manufacturers are spending on advertisement rather than sending all that money to Facebook and Google such that they can monetize the sludge they drag out of the dungeons of the internet. Um, so I think that's one of those big structural battles where when people hear the term ban targeted advertisement or ban surveillance advertisement for the first time, they go like, what do you mean? Right? Like, ah, that sounds... Uh, no, actually, it's just winding back the clock like 10 years 12 years 15 years on commerce and advertisement to a place that was far healthier where the media landscape looked far better and where these massive platforms weren't basically profiting massively off turning us all against each other
1: i think that's a very very uh sensible idea and, and, I, and I certainly agree with with very much a lot of what you just said but it so um I would love to wind this conversation down now. We always ask a couple of steeple co- uh, questions at the end. Uh, you talked about um, influence earlier. What other books have impacted your life, David?
0: Wow, that's a big, deep topic. I'll pick a, <laughs> a few here. Um, the first real philosophy of life that I got into deeply was Stoicism. And there's a great introduction book called the guide to the good life. We've touched on a lot of the themes that echo in Stoicism over the, uh, the time here. And I think that's a great introduction to Stoicism. Follow that up with a original text called the manual, which is, which has the densest, um, Uh, page to punch ratio of any book I've ever read in my entire life. It takes about 45 minutes to read. It's all original source. So this is like 2000 year old stuff. And it's incredible. Just the insights and tactics, stoic tactics that it describes on how to live a better life and how to deal mentally with yourself and other people and your ego and so on. It's just truly incredible. Still, I start with A Guide to the Good Life. It's a modern presentation of all the story principles, then follow it up with the manual. And then a um, writer I've I've just been devouring his books is Eric Frum. Um, He's written a, I don't know, 30, 40 books. There's a lot to grab from. But connecting to the discussion we had about kids and teaching them where to go and so on there's a, a wonderful book that isn't actually about parenting but can be applied as such called to have or to be which is a wonderful dissertation on our capitalist accumulation connection with ego and i am the more i have and all this other shit that's uh, the ideology that flows all around us it's a great way of starting to deprogram on that um, and then let me. For, for many years I didn't read any uh, nonfiction at all I didn't read any novels just because I was obsessed with whatever non-fiction uh, books but I've, I've come to regret that late start but I'm trying to make up for, for lost time and perhaps my favorite um, novel as of yet is um, The Trial by the trial. Uh, Kafka it's just a, it's a book I think about all the time. And uh, it's just, it's wonderfully written, very approachable. It raises all sorts of deep questions that Kafka, when he wrote it back in, what, 32 or 34 or whatever, he started working on it, um, did not know how well he was describing our modern algorithmically opaque society. And um, I recommend that to anyone. And then let me put in the last uh, recommendation for a- another short book. I'm a big fan of short books, generally speaking. Um, Notes from Underground um, is a good introduction or, or touch on in novel form of existentialism, that there's more to life than just enlightenment thoughts about rationality and so forth. So that's going to be my four recommendations. A Guide to the Good Life, The Manual, To Have or To Be. Actually, that's five. Uh, the Trial, <laughs> and Notes from the Underground.
1: I will include all of them in the show notes. I'm excited to read a couple of those myself. So my last question for you today, before I ask you to sign off and direct our audience wherever you would like to direct them. My last question for you today is what makes a life worth living?
0: I love that question because that's been the focus of much of my reading and much of my pursuit. I don't, thankfully, there isn't just a simple quick answer to it. Um, let me just sneak in a, another book recommendation that tries to answer that directly, which is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, um, which essentially decide or um, sort of posits that the purpose of life is to find meaning. And what that meaning is, is up to the individual. But finding that meaning, finding a reason to live, it's also a theme that goes through existentialism, that this isn't something that's ordained from above. This isn't something we get from the gods or from nature or otherwise. This is something we have to find for ourselves and we have to pick it. I found it in many of the things that I do. I found a deep sense of meaning. And I think it's one of those things you kind of, you know it or you feel it when you grab it. It's a little like love in that regard. And if you aren't feeling it, you got to keep looking. Um, a, a, a final recommendation, not really for a book, but for, for an article is um, Bullshit Jobs by David Graber, who describes that somewhere between a 30 and 40% of people who work today believe that their job has no purpose. It has no meaning. And if they did not do it, the world would tick on just as well. That's a tragedy. It's a, a terrible place to be. And if you are in that group and you haven't found the meaning in it, um, maybe you are so lucky that uh, it doesn't matter because you have great meaning outside of work. But I'd say you gotta, we gotta keep looking. It, we, we can't live as a as a world, as a society, with a third or
1: more people thinking like, "There's no purpose to what I do." We can. Our audience connect with you, and what projects you're working on. Where do you want our, the, our people to to check out?
0: Yeah, so for many years, my main outlet um, was Twitter. Uh, I'm on there as at DHH, but I've grown increasingly ambivalent about that platform, about the kinds of conversations it provokes. And I don't think they're actually healthy in many regards. I'm still sort of somewhat addicted to it, but I happen to be on a detox right now. And I've focused my writing in longer form. It's at worldhaycom slash DHH. It's long form writing. It's an email newsletter slash blog. And I've had some wonderful conversations with readers because they're not happening on a goddamn stage in 240 characters 280 characters at the time long form conversations off the stage they're just they're great and i like long form writing i like long form thinking and while i've had some interesting runs on twitter um i find that they they provoke all the worst things in me and sometimes that's a spectacle and fun to watch and fun to be a part of um but uh, it's also i think inherently unhealthy so i'd uh i'd start I start following. If, if, you, if you're interested in any of these thoughts, start following the um, the newsletter on world.hay.com/slash DHH. And uh, yeah,
1: I will link it below. I'm grateful for you coming on. I'm grateful for you uh, boldly sharing your thoughts on a number of these pressing issues. I'm grateful for the fantastic advice which you've shared with us today. David, thank you so much for coming on.
0: My pleasure.